We want to welcome everyone to tonight's class in the book of Revelation. Tonight we're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter number 20, getting closer and closer to the end of the book of Revelation. Some exciting things are taking place, and this is actually one of the more exciting uh, passages of Scripture, um, I believe, at least for believers it is, because uh, of what it talks about in the beginning of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But we're going to be in verses 4 through 6. So let's go ahead and read chapter number 20, verses 4 through 6, and then we'll come back and we'll pull those apart a little bit. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their forehead or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we don't have a lot of detail, a lot of information about the thousand year reign, but we, we do get a, a little bit of a picture here as to what's going to take place, and we're going to kind of look at that a little bit. Now, remember what's what's already taken place in the book of Revelation, what we've already seen. We've seen two great events already take place. The first one, um, when Jesus Christ came back or will be coming back to the earth as a conqueror. He's coming back to destroy the Antichrist to, uh, and all the war machines, the armies of, of uh, Armageddon, uh, defeat all the armies of the, of the world. There will not be a shot fired in Armageddon, even though the armies of the world will be there. There won't be one shot fired. Instead, with the word of his mouth, like a laser beam going out, will destroy everybody and everything that is in the way. All the armies of the nation, all the armies of the world will be will be defeated in with a simple word coming from his mouth. Secondly, Christ is going to take Satan and bind him and remove him from the earth. Basically, he's just picking him up and taking him off the playing field. Uh, this is going to take place for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, he's going to be in prison. And this is the thousand years that we're entering into right now in the scripture that we just read that's what's taking place um that doesn't mean that evil leaves the world evil will still have its opportunity during the millennial reign the difference is satan's not going to be there without satan there it's going to be a very very different world than what we're used to today uh with god in control with jesus christ in control of the government with jesus christ in control of the church uh in charge of society it's going to be a very very different world than what we see today during that millennial reign there will be no more wars. Uh, killing will will, um, will cease to exist. There will be no more assaults or abuses or or, or crimes that go unpunished. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more homelessness. Uh, laziness and lethargiousness will not be tolerated. Um, there will be no pushing of drugs or enslavement to, to drunkenness or any other addictions. These things are going to be taken away because Satan and his forces are gone. But humans, by their very nature, are still flawed beings so we're still going to have choices to make and we'll see some of those choices or the results of some of those choices when G when uh, satan is released from uh, hell not tonight but in a, in a later study now for that what we're looking at tonight uh in revelation chapter number 20 verse number four we we begin to see the the rewards notice that, that john is talking he's seeing some people here and he's describing them basically two groups of people that he's talking about in verse number four he says, and I saw the thrones and they that sat upon them. So he sees these people that are sitting upon thrones. It says, and judgment was given unto them. And then there's a second group of people. He says, and 
I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus Christ, for Jesus and for the word of God. So there's two distinct groups of people here. A lot of times people read this very, very quickly and they think that this is all the same people. And it's not. This is two distinct groups. And that's important for a number of reasons. But it tells us who these people are. He sees these people. Who are the people that are sitting upon the thrones? We'll start with those. Those are those that live again. Those are the ones that come to life. They're the ones that will reign with Christ. Uh, those are, are the ones that it's talking about in the next verses that are talking about verse number five. It talks about the resurrection. Those are the part of the first resurrection. Um, they're the believers who have died. Uh, the dead believers from all time. These are the ones that are here. These are the ones that are part of this, this resurrection. They will, those are the ones that will rule and reign with Christ through the millennium. Uh, their bodies, our bodies, this will be us, unless we're still alive when he comes back. This will be us. And uh, these are the, uh, our, we'll get our bodies back. We'll have the, the new bodies back. And we'll take part during this millennial reign with Jesus Christ. And then there's that other group of people. It's, that other group is a lot easier to identify. They're the martyrs. They're the, the martyrs of the tribulation, the one who refused during the tribulation period to take the mark. They're the ones that refused to worship Satan. They're the ones that refused the, the desires of the, of the Antichrist and the, and the false prophet. They're the ones that, that rejected that. Those are those Christians. Those are the ones that were beheaded for Christ. And I always found it fascinating. as barbaric. And I don't know exactly what the word is I'm looking for there, but just as old school and barbaric, and old school is probably not the right term there, as beheading is, there's much more efficient ways to kill somebody, particularly in today's day and age. We could, you can poison people, you can shoot people, you can, um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways. Hitler had all kinds of ways to kill people that didn't involve beheading, but yet the Antichrist and Satan are going to be beheading Christians during this time. And that's not hard to believe because today, one of the main ways that Christians are killed throughout the world is by beheading. There's a, a certain perverse pleasure, I think, that Satan gets out of that, of removing the head from the body. I think a lot of that is symbolism because Jesus Christ is the head of the church and the removal of the head. Now, of course, that's speculation. That's not what the Word of God says. And I like to point out when I'm giving you opinions and speculation. But I, I do find it interesting that even in that time and even today, Christians are being beheaded almost daily in this world. Um, there's a couple websites that I'll, I'll go to that kind of keep track of things like that. And we don't see a lot of this in the American uh, media. They, they kind of uh, screen all that out so we don't see those things. And they say, well, it's not really pertinent for us here, but, but it is pertinent for us here to see how the church is being persecuted around the world and see how almost daily in, in other countries, particularly in the Middle East, but not just the Middle East, also in China, also in North Korea and other places around the world, they're, they're almost daily beheading of Christians as barbar or barbaric as inefficient as a way of death that is although it is a, it is a complete way there is no coming back from that there's no no fainting and coming back you might be able to survive a gunshot wound i guess but you're not going to survive a beheading so in that sense i guess it's efficient but it's it's a messy way to do it it's a very barbaric way to do it it's a it takes a a very disturbed person to swing an axe or a sword that that hard to to sever somebody's head from their body. It's not something that, that is done easily like it is in the movies. And yet that's still the choice at this particular time. That's still how Satan is going to be destroying Christians. He's going to be having them beheaded. And that's these are those people there. These are the, those that are vindicated from that time of tribulation. They're going to be there. So John sees both of these sets of people there. And we see that millennial reign of Jesus Christ is, uh, when the, the believer's glorious rule and reign uh, uh, with Christ begins. It's going to be during that that 
thousand uh, that thousand year period. Notice what he says in verse number four. He says, "I saw thrones, and they, that's the believers, sat upon them, and judgment that means authority or rule was given to them." So, as believers, we are not just going to be there. We're actually going to rule. We're actually going to reign. This is kind of the first picture that we see of the organization that we're going to have um, after the, the millennial reign. This is a, a small taste of that organization that's going to take place. Um, he'll set up, it's when Jesus Christ sets up his organization and his rule and reign throughout the entire universe. The millennium is, is where Christ removes the fallen spiritual beings from power. This is where Satan and his heavenly host are bound and removed from power. Now remember the spiritual forces that fight against God and man, the high places the scripture says that they hold. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is what's taking place at this time. This is our, our spiritual battles that are becoming real at this time. And it stated, this is where Christ dethroned Satan and his heavenly host. We saw that in last week's study, we, we talked about that a great deal, um, where Christ reclaims the position of the principalities, of the high places, of the, of the rule, not just here on earth, but throughout the entire universe. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, it says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you not worthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge, that means oversee and rule, angels? How much more? things that pertain to this life. This is a great verse whenever somebody uh, tries to pull out the verse where it says, judge not lest you be judged. This is a great verse to, to tell them, you know, that they have to take that verse out of context to give any kind of, uh, to use it to their purpose. But you can use this verse in context and it, it shows that not only are we called to judge, but we're going to be judging over greater things than this earth. We're going to be judging over not just this earth, the entire universe over the angels. Um, second Timothy, uh, two 12, it says that if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Verse number five, let's, let's move on. I, I'm taking too much time here. We're only have three verses and I'm going to spend it all in the first verse. We're going to run out of time, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So we see this is the first resurrection. There is a second resurrection. We, we won't get to tonight. Uh, we'll mention it, but we won't really get into that detail tonight. This is the first resurrection. This is the resurrection for the believers. So the other dead, the rest of the dead, will not live until after the thousand years. Those are the dead that have suffered the second death. We'll see in a moment. Those are the dead that, that aren't believers in Christ. That's all the others that have died in this world. The millennial reign will only see the resurrection of the believers, not the unbelievers. The unbelievers will be at the second resurrection. They'll be resurrected so that they can stand judgment. But for this for the millennial reign, it's just us. It's just the believers. Uh, the first resurrection is uh, not for unbelievers. Uh, it's for those of us who are blessed and and and, and holy and, and will uh, avoid that second death um, that we'll talk about in just a moment. In Revelation 4 and 5, again, it says, He saw the thrones of them that, that sat upon them. The judgment was given to them. I saw the souls that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And for the word of God, and not worship the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark in their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So he's, he's kind of preparing us for the fact that there is a second resurrection. He says very, very clearly, this is the first resurrection. 
I don't think John could have made this portion of the scripture any clearer. Sometimes some of the things he says, we have to kind of step back and look at and say, what is it that John's trying to say? You know, because he's trying to describe some things that are difficult to describe with uh, with a human tongue. He's trying to describe supernatural things with a human tongue. And sometimes that becomes very, very difficult for him. So he has to use symbolism. This is very clear. This is very concise, exactly what he's talking about here. Verse number six, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we see this millennial reign, the great privilege. First, it, it says that we're going to be blessed. Those that, that are part of that first resurrection were blessed. Um, it, you know, that, that word that they use there for, for blessed, or that's translated in English for blessed, is makarios. And that word can just as easily mean uh, joy or satisfaction. It means that we're going to be completely satisfied. We're going to have complete joy during this time. We'll be completely and, and completely fulfilled at this particular time. We'll have secure peace. Uh, we'll know finally that we have significance. Um, I, I talk to people sometimes and counsel with people and they, they feel like they have no purpose. They have no use in this world. Even sometimes Christians fall into that trap of depression where they begin to feel like, you know, why am I even here? Do, does it even matter? If, if I wasn't here, would it make an impact on the world? And, you know, you can debate that. The, the obvious answer is yes, we all have an impact. Most of the time, it's an impact that we don't see, we don't feel. But even dropping a small pebble into a still water, it's going to cause ripples that are going to affect everything else in the water. But here, there will be no doubt. During that thousand-year reign, there will be no doubt whether or not you have significance. There will be none of that depression. There will be none of that, that, that downward talk that we put ourselves through. We will have significance. We will know that we have significance because we will be blessed. To be blessed is kind of what we seek. Unfortunately, in our current state, we confuse blessing with physical things. We look at blessed, you know, we say, well, I've got a new car and I've got a nice house. And we say, well, God has really blessed me. We, we equate blessed to being a, a physical, tangible thing. And that's typically not what God is talking about when he's talking about being blessed. He's talking more of a spiritual and emotional situation than he is a physical. Unfortunately, and there's nothing wrong with a new house. There's nothing wrong with a new car. Don't get me wrong. The problem is when we start equating things to being blessed, then we start falling into that name it, claim it type of theology, that false theology where, you know, God owes me a new car and God owes me a house. And if I don't have a new car and don't have a house, then I'm not blessed. And that is so far off the reservation, so far out of what God teaches. Again, there's nothing wrong with being rich. The Bible's full of rich people. David was a rich person. Abraham was a rich person. The Bible's full of rich people that God used and a lot of poor people that he used. A lot of most of the prophets. Amos was was just a dirt poor old country prophet. And and we see, you know, the entire spectrum. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with not having money. Money is a tool. It's the problem comes with money. When we start, one, we start to love it. We start to worship it. But here is in, in the context we're talking about being blessed. It's when we start to equate the things that we have with our blessings. And you can be extremely blessed and never have and not have any type of monetary wealth. I mean, Jesus had, uh, as far as monetary wealth, had almost nothing. He was, he was uh, by our standards today, we'd probably call him a homeless person because he just went from place to place to place. He didn't really have a place to lay his head, not a permanent resident. Um, Elijah, you know, look at, look at Elijah, you know, the prophet Elijah, you know, he got to a point where he was being hunted down and, and uh, God took him to the brook of Cherith 
and he didn't even have food. The birds had to come and bring him food every day. That's that, but he was highly blessed. I mean, birds have never fed me. Well, except the ones at KFC, those have fed me, but, but I mean, birds have never brought me food. I, and so I am not nearly as blessed as what he was, even though I have a refrigerator full of food, probably some chicken in there too, somewhere in the freezer or someplace. But we equate too often, and I fall into this, and I'm, I'm sure you do too. We equate when we can't pay a bill as God's mad at us or God's not blessing us. Or when, you know, things come through and we get an inheritance or a big tax refund or something like that, we think, wow, God's really blessing me because look what he's done. Well, he's given me this, he's given me this, and he's given me this. Be careful of that. Because sometimes monetarily, God will bless you. But because he's blessing you monetarily doesn't mean he's blessing me monetarily. And when we get out there and we start bragging about, you know, look at all the stuff God gave me. I had a, a friend of mine, uh, more of an acquaintance, that was uh, he, on paper, he's a millionaire by, by far. Uh, best-selling author, uh, chiropractor, I mean, just does, it, on different streams of income, and each one of them is bringing him in millions. And and he would he would kind of do that. He's like, look how much God loves me. He gave me this big house. He gave me this car. He gave me this great family. And that's all well and good. But you know what? Everybody else looks at and says, well, I guess God doesn't love me like he loves him. And nothing was further from the truth. He was so far backslidden, it wasn't even funny. He'd come off stage and, and you know, some of the things that he would say and do that, you know, the rest of us knew you're not even, you, some of us were even questioning whether or not he was a Christian. But he would get up there and he'd portray this, look at me, look at what God has done for me. And he was equating being blessed with what he had. And unfortunately, there's a lot of rich people out there that don't know anything about Jesus Christ. There's a very wealthy rapper out there that I'm sure you've seen the advertisements for. He's coming out with a pair of shoes, Satan shoes. And he's very rich, very wealthy. And he worships Satan. Um, he's going to be selling these shoes. These are Nikes. And they're going to be selling them for uh, $1,018 a pair. And he's only going to make 666 pairs. I mean, the symbolism is all over this thing. And he's doing it because he needs attention. He's got a new album that's coming out, and he needs attention. He wants these things to happen. We have the uh, you know people like this that are very, very wealthy. Does that mean God's blessing them? No, it's just the exact opposite. The reason why he's trying to sell these shoes is because he's not blessed. In other words, he doesn't have that peace. He doesn't have that joy. He doesn't have that... That, that sense of belonging inside of him. And so he's trying to get some attention. Um, I was joking around with somebody the other day talking about this. I said, you know, he obviously wasn't hugged enough as a kid. And and there's probably a lot of truth to that. He's got a huge emptiness, but it's not going to be filled by hugs. That emptiness will only be filled by Jesus Christ. I have nowhere, no idea where I am in my notes right now. I've gotten off on so many little rabbit trails there. <clears throat> Back to what we we're talking about, blessings. Blessings is what we seek, but but too often we tie it to material things. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's where we're blessed. We're blessed in our spiritual things. We're blessed in things that we can set aside for God. We're blessed in that peace and that joy that, that comes about without all those material things. Sometimes I think material things just get in the way. It seems like the more we have, uh, the more we have to distract us from God. And then it says, not only are we blessed, we're also holy. Think about that. We're going to be holy. I mean, that just blows my mind because there's nothing holy about me now. Although this, this old shirt may have some holes in it somewhere. There's nothing holy about me. 
Um, but I will be holy. And in a sense, I am holy now, but it's not because of me. It's, and it won't be because of me then either. It's going to be because of the holiness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll have that perfect holiness of Jesus Christ himself. We'll be perfectly separated from the world. We'll be set apart unto God. These people, us, will bear this very same nature as Christ himself, a, a holy nature, a nat nature that is pure, perfectly pure. Think about that for a minute. Imagine having a holy, perfect, pure nature. How much less stress there would be in our lives. How much better things would be. And not just us, but everybody that we're dealing with are going to be, going to be that same way. It's going to be amazing, particularly at the beginning of the thousand year. We'll mess it up. Trust me, we'll mess it up. But but at the beginning, it's going to be great. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Think about that. We're on a journey now. That's kind of what the word Christian means. It means to be, it means a, like, it implies that we're on a, a journey to become Christ-like. And that's kind of our, our goal as Christians. Once we're justified, then that, like we talked about this morning, that sanctification sets in and we begin to be purified uh, sometimes through fire, sometimes through heat, we draw closer and closer to God through our studies, through our experiences, through things that we allow God to do with us, the things that we sacrifice to God, we become more and more like Christ. And that's what Christian means. It means Christ-like, but it implies that journey of becoming Christ-like. And here on this earth, in this lifetime, that's not going to happen for us. We're never going to truly be Christ-like. But here we'll be, this is what he's talking about, that predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We are going to be as Christ-like as we can become during that thousand-year reign. How amazing will that be? The interactions between people will be so much more blessed, so much more, more fulfilling with each other. Uh, and it says resurrection, resurrected believers won't be touched by the second death. Um, the Bible talks about second death in a couple places. And just so we kind of understand what that second death is, we understand the first death very, very well because we've all experienced it. We've either buried a loved one or an animal or, or somebody. We, we've experienced that death. As the hospital chaplain, I see death quite often. We do funerals for people, memorial services for people, sometimes at the church, sometimes in town. And we, we've done these over and over. So we, we're very, very familiar with death. I remember my, the first time that I experienced a, a, a death was my, my best friend when I was five years old. Um, he was shot and killed by another playmate. And they were just playing with a gun, thought it was unloaded. He was shot and killed. And even though I, I understood I'd never see him again, I didn't really fully understand that he was dead. That was my first interaction with that. And then, of course, I had grandparents die, and I had other people that I cared about die. And over the years, unfortunately, we kind of get used to people dying. We're always surprised by it and always startled by it. But but it, we, we come to know that it's just part of living here. And as sad as that is, as part of this sinful, corrupted world is that that people die, and eventually we will die too. So that's the first death. It's an interesting thing because we call it death, but in essence, what it is, is it's a separation. The physical or the, the living part of us and the physical part of us become separated. The physical basically stays the same. We don't get shorter or taller or heavier or lighter. We stay pretty much the same, but the life is, is taken away from us. And when that life is taken away from us, we recognize that. And the doctor says, this person is dead because the life isn't there anymore. I've had people, I hear this quite often. I'll be up front during a, a memorial service and people will come up to pay their final respects and they'll come up and they'll look at the person and they, they say completely inappropriate things without even thinking about it. 
and then feel guilty about it, but it, it's okay. But one of the common things is, is that the person just looks like they're asleep or, or my favorite that really troubles people after it comes out of their mouth is they say he looks better dead than he did alive. And as rude, as disrespectful as that is, you know, we've kind of all fought it at one point or another. And the reason why is because they're completely at rest now. The troubles of the world are gone and they do look better. They don't have all that stress on them. But it's kind of inappropriate for us to say at a funeral, even though it's very, very common for people to say. And the difference is that the life is gone. They're just that clay vessel now. And so we look at that separation. We, we identify that separation. We say that person is dead because of the separation. That's the first death. The second death the Bible talks about is also a separation. That's what took place in the Garden of Eden. You see, when Adam and Eve were first created, they didn't have that that second death wasn't even an option for them at the time. That first death wasn't even an option for them at the time. But because of sin, they experienced both. Remember what God told them? The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And then they ate of it, and they didn't die. And people said, well, they died years later. No, no. He said, when you eat of it. And what happened that when they ate of it, they were separated from him. Remember, he came down and he said, Adam, Eve, where are you? And well, we hid because we were naked. And, you know, the whole thing that took place, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, no longer to be in his presence anymore. And they they placed a, a, a guard there so they couldn't get back into the garden. So they couldn't come back into his presence. It wasn't even an option for them at that particular time. And then he created the sacrifice. And the sacrifice was a way to cover their sins so that they could have some type, some semblance of, of reunion with them, to have their sins covered for a year. But they were separated from God. And today the Bible tells us that we're born dead in our trespasses and sin. Because of the sin nature that's passed on by our Father, we're born. We're born separated from God. And that's disturbing for me. And it should be disturbing for you, but that's the reality we live in. That's why we're not all God's children. We become God's children when we're adopted in the family of God. You see, we're separated. That separation is that, that other death. And now, once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we don't have to experience that second death anymore. That's gone. Because through Jesus Christ, now we're reunited with Christ. We're reunited with the Father. We're reunited with the Holy Spirit. So we, we have that, that reunion that takes place. And the, the loss of this world, they'll not only face the first death, they face, they face the second death an eternity separated from God. We won't face that. We will never be separated from God. That is a promise that's made to us that, that we will, that's why we'll be, that's why he uses that word eternal so often the word of God, we will be with him. We'll never be touched by that second death. We'll never face that eternal separation that the lost is going to face when they're cast into hell. They're dead now, but it becomes permanent when they're cast into hell. In Revelation 2014, which we haven't got to yet, it says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It's that eternity separated from God. That eternity separated from God is that second death. The second death is, is being separated from God, being cast in the lake of fire. Um, it, the point is this. The resurrected believers, us, will never have to suffer the second death. This is a fate that's completely off the table for us. This is something we don't have to experience. Again, we are blessed beyond measure. Um, no matter how you look at it, that is a blessing. Uh, then it says the resurrected believer, we're going to serve as priests of God and priests of Christ. Um, we'll have the same rights as what they had on earth. Think about the priest, the high priest in the Old Testament. The high priest in the Old Testament was able to do something that nobody else was, was able to do. 
he was able to go into the Holy of Holies. If you've ever seen the temple, you know that there's courtyards outside and then there's inner courtyards. And then, then you've got the, the, the holy place and inside the holy place is the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. The reason being is because when he went into the high place, the, the, the Holy of Holies, that's where the presence of God would come down and receive the, the offering. So literally he was standing in that Shekinah glory, in the presence of that Shekinah glory, in that presence of the Shekinah glory of God that no other man could do. And he could only do it if he was, if he was at that point sinless in his life. They would, they would, they had a, a shepherd's crook that they would keep there. That if they if they didn't hear the uh, the high priest moving around anymore because he went in unworthily and he died in the presence of God, nobody else could go in and get the body. So they'd have to take the shepherd's hook and hook it up underneath and drag his body out, and then they'd pass the mantle on to somebody else. How'd you like to be that second guy? Think about that for a minute. I know it, being the high priest that's a high honor, but how would you like to be the second guy after after Bob just died? And now they're like, oh, here you go, Danny, you try it now. I don't think I'd want to be the second guy, but anyways, we're running out of time. I, I got to stop going down these rabbit trails, but he had the privilege of being able to do that. And that wasn't truly the presence of God. That was just God's glory that he was in the presence of. We will have the opportunity to not only be in the presence of God's glory, but to be in the presence of God. Why? Because we are going to be priests of God. Technically, we're priests today of God. We are the priesthood of the believers today. And we have that thrill. We have that opportunity when we pray, we are literally going into the into the presence of God. I think too many Christians take that for granted. They think that prayers are just, uh, you know, make you feel better and it's just happy thoughts, things like that. When you pray, you are literally going into the presence of God because you are a priest of God. We're going to talk. I got a whole thing I'm going to do on the priesthood of, of the believers one day, not not on here, but, but probably during a, a Sunday morning service or, or some other teaching time that we're going to do on the priesthood of the believer. But you're a priest today. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a priest of God today and a priest of Jesus Christ today. And we will serve as priests of God. And 1 Peter 2, 5, it says, You also, as lively stones, are built upon a spiritual house and holy priesthood. This is us. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. A couple other things I want to touch on real quick that are going to take place for us in that time that we've already talked about. Actually, we talked about it back in uh, chapter number 14, that the resurrected believers will rule and reign with Christ. We talked a little bit about being priests, but we are going to rule and reign with them. In other words, each one of us is going to be given uh, uh, authority over something or, or some other people or over angels. We'll each have a position. You know, what are those positions and what are they based upon? You know, we can speculate on that all day. We don't know. We just know that it's a fact from what he told us in Revelation 14, I think it's 14, 13, actually, that we will have that, we'll rule and reign with him. And not only will we rule and reign with him, we'll be ruled by him. We are under his authority, not the authority of the government of this world, not the authority of, of anything else, but we are ruled with him and by him. Um, that all is also talked about in, in Revelation chapter number 14.